I'm Andrew Faust. This is Permaculture Perspectives. Good morning. I'm here at the Center for Bioregional Living recording in my outdoor studio and I thought that I would share with you a little of the morning, you know, just trying to let the chickens out, get everybody in gear, making some sourdough waffles that I set up to start last night so I could hop out here and talk to you all about some of the work we have to do in the world as human beings. So, giving thanks for another day on the planet. Every day I start with that. I think it's really important. And I wanted to share with you one of the other things I like to start with, which are a couple readings. Um, speaking to the idea of philosophy and the nature of permaculture in terms of its philosophical positioning, shall we say, uh, insofar as permaculture gives us ideas about action and the most effective sort of action to take, and so I see it as applicable to so many spheres, uh, political included. Most interestingly, often not being applied to things like regional infrastructures, cities, political design, uh, often being designed for what I call the idiosyncratic application of backyard permaculture Shangri-Las, which are fun, and let's create them and link up a bunch of them and start to have a plan. So I like reading about history, and I like thinking about what's our plan, collectively speaking, as members of what I would call the Western privileged class G20 nations living in a largely industrial society that like to rant and rave about something they'd like to see better, but are often highly dependent upon and continuing to perpetuate the very system, as Uncle Bill has put it, instead of providing food and buildings, revolutionaries are often perpetuating the very system that they're revolting against. And so therefore we need to create another system, and what is that system? And how do we do it? And why do we do it? Because in Western privileged class societies, it is especially essential that we address the why. This is not just right now an imperative because of the comfort bubble, but when it becomes an imperative, it'll be too late, as everybody tells us in many, many sectors. And I think it's pretty glaringly obvious when we look at things like water quality, air quality. And that's why philosophy and history, to me, are useful tools about why, as well as navigating our path, shall we say. So one of the readings I'm going to share with you is from Further Teachings of Lao Tzu the long-forgotten sequel to the Tao Te Ching. Translated by one of my favorite translators, Thomas Cleary. And here's what I'm going to read to you, section, page 116, number 121. Good leaders in ancient times took their example from rivers and oceans, Rivers and oceans do nothing to become so huge. It is by hollowness and lowliness that they become so vast. That is why they can last. Being valleys of the world, their qualities are full. Because they do nothing, they can take in a hundred rivers. They are able to gain because they do not seek. And they are able to arrive because they do not go. This is the way to take the whole world without trying. You are rich because you do not elevate yourself. You are enlightened because you do not see yourself. And you last long because you are not proud of yourself. Dwelling in the realm of non-possessiveness, you can therefore be king of the world because you do not contend. No one can contend with you because you never act as if you were great. Therefore, you can become great. Humility, as I've been saying, is one of the keys to permaculture design, and we hear here in Taoism a further articulation 
of this profound understanding and use of language. I'm going to contrast that to some Western philosophy here in a bit and read to you from another book. But first, let's finish this passage here from the further teachings of Lao Tzu. Rivers and oceans are near to the way, so they can last long, joining sky and earth in mutual preservation. If kings and lords practice the way, their work is successful, but they are not proprietary. Because they are not proprietary, they are strong and firm, strong and firm without being violent toward others. When you are deeply into the way, your virtue is deep. And when your virtue is deep, then success and honor are eventually achieved. This is called mysterious virtue. It is deep, far-reaching, opposite of ordinary people. The world has a beginning, but no one knows its design. Only sages know how it happened. It is not masculine or feminine. It is born, but does not die. It is produced by heaven and earth, formed by yin and yang, and given birth by myriad beings. Therefore, yin and yang have roundness and squareness, shortness and longness, survival and destruction. The way gives them direction. Sunken in mystery with no concern, your state of mind is very subtle, and your relation to the way is very accurate. Death and life of the same design. The evolution of myriad things combines into one way. Simplify life and forget death. And where will you not live long? Detach from things and words and be careful not to contrive. Keep to the way with comprehensive close attention and do not be domineering over anyone. The highest subtlety is formless. At the beginning of heaven and earth, all things were the same in the way, but they came to differ in form. Because the highest subtlety has no object, it can be universally caring. Because it is so immense, there is nothing outside it. Therefore, it is a cover for all beings. Because it is so fine that there is nothing inside it. Therefore, it is precious for all beings. The way is the means to preserve life. Virtue is the means to safeguard the body. So we're going to leave Lao Tzu now with those thoughts. I'd like to also say, in particular, let's pay attention to what he's saying about detach from things and words and be careful not to contrive. Keep to the way with comprehensive close attention and do not be domineering over anyone. The highest subtlety is formless. Let's contrast that to Western philosophy, which does often spend an awful lot of time in the realm of words and things. And here now I'd like to share with you a little writing from a history book on Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic Age is the title by Peter Green, one of my favorite historians that I've been reading for this time period. And I'm going to give you some background as we read it to the references that Peter Green's going to make so you can get a sense of the thread and the meaning of what he's saying here on page 140 and 141. So he's talking about the transition from the Greek dominance of the ancient world with Alexander the Great to the chaos that followed for a generation or so as a result of Alexander's exploits with the Greek city-states into really what basically becomes the Roman Empire, but starting with the Roman Republic and their interactions with the Greeks. So here he's talking about how the Greek city-states are responding to this advent of change in the ancient world where they are no longer the dominant power. Paradoxically, it was 
the polis in its external manifestations. Theaters, gymnasia, civic officialdom, the religious year cycle, traditional cults, honorific degrees, endless litigation, and public debate that survived through all the sturm and drang of Hellenistic power politics to give the Greeks of this new world a nostalgic sense, despite the loss of real independence and control, that things had not really changed, that in the fundamental structure of their lives remained the same. In a sense, of course, this was true. The polis had always been, in essence, a local, not to say parochial, phenomenon, and so it remained. What it had lost was the strictly limited world over which it ruled, one of the unlooked-for novelties that Alexander and the successors had introduced was true internationalism. The proportions of political life had simply been upscaled to a hitherto inconceivable degree. And the communication systems, physical, verbal, mental, necessary for these wider horizons, soon followed. The spread of Attic Greek as lingua franca, the development of the monsoon-based sea traffic between India and the West, even the concept of the cosmopolites, all sprang naturally from Alexander's conquests. The shift of emphasis, and this is an interesting theme that he goes into, and we're going to get into this specific topic of philosophy and its role and the difference of practicing it for insights versus for... Uh, distraction or illusion creation. The shift of emphasis from public to private life that we have seen manifesting itself in various ways throughout this study was looked at politically, a formal resignation of public ambition in the old Periclean sense, an abandonment of pretensions to empire. It did not come easily, and the philosophical panaceas produced during the Hellenistic era tend to confirm what Hesiod had learned the hard way in the 8th century, that those lacking superior force need to convince themselves, and that they may be right just often enough to keep the belief going. That the pen is indeed mightier than the sword. Even so, to a remarkable degree, all Hellenistic creeds, from Stoicism to the counterculture of the Cynics, were agreed that as Xenocrates, head of the Academy, 339 to 314 BC, we're talking about here, put it in the immediate aftermath of Chaeronea and the collapse of the Achaemenid Empire. Now there he's referring to a battle where 30,000 people were killed in one battle. And the crushing of any sense, and that was by the Romans in a town that was controlled by Greeks. And he's saying that the reason for discovering philosophy is to allay that which causes disturbance in life. The full implications of this attitude are not always appreciated. What such statements, and they came to be a commonplace, imply is a kind of intellectual tsunami a universal disaster from which philosophy must attempt to salvage what it can, and for the survivors of which it sets out to provide some kind of makeshift comfort. So I wanted to share with you a couple morning passages from inspirations of mine, perspectives I like to take in thinking about the state of the world today and how to navigate the affairs that we're in, my thinking is to say, you know, Eastern philosophy gives us much more profound insights to what I would call the foundations of the Western disease, this disease of outwardness and a lack of awareness of inwardness. Paying attention to the within is key to understanding and having a positive relationship with the without. To use Teilhard de Chardin's language, the within is the without. And Teilhard de Chardin is who we also give credit 
and recognize here as the thinker who coined the term and began a lot of Western cultures thinking and conversation about the interconnectedness of all life on this planet. He called it the biosphere. And even more interestingly and unique to Chardin is the term the nuosphere. The nuosphere, N-O-O-S, sphere, nuosphere, is about consciousness. And Taylor de Chardin's idea was something that Joseph Chilton Pierce also builds on in much of his writing, another teacher and influence of mine. And what Pierce is saying, and Chardin began the conversation of, is that consciousness, consciousness actually exists outside of space and time as we know it in the terms of modern physics, which of course we know that what we don't know vastly outweighs what we do know. So even modern physics, accepted definitions of space and time have lots of latitude, shall we say, in terms of their absoluteness, right? They are aspects of reality that we have definitely perceived, defined, and are functional and true. And there are many other dimensions to the world that we live in that are also true that we have not been able to describe with any of the tools that we have for describing things like mathematics and language. And consciousness exists in this realm that I'm referring to right now with language, which is this place of outside of space and time. We're no longer to the rules of space and time apply. And what this is referring to is where, where do ideas come from? And what they're positing here is that the brain is actually more like an antenna that tunes in to a different atmospheric level of energy called the nuosphere where all human consciousness, all consciousness conceivably, of all beings through all time, exists in the nuosphere. There's no limits to space and time in the nuosphere and consciousness. And our capacity to tap into this ancient bank of knowledge is of course there. What our, what our brains and our minds are very often expending a, a large amount of energy doing is repeating back to ourselves and our fellow human beings the things that we've acculturated as important. But there are many other things that are important than what our culture is paying attention to. And that's why I, again, would point you to Eastern thinking on these topics, like a phrase which comes to mind for me, which is unconditioning the conditioned mind. We are all conditioned. And unconditioning also means simplifying your life. Simple, beautiful moments are gifts to cherish in the sense of being calm and breathing and enjoying the gift of life. And I would add to that for today, spending as much time, whatever spending means in regards to time, make it a intention to be outside doing things that are healthy and involve a wide range of movement for your well-being. Breathe, climb trees, have fun, run around, roll in the grass, and that's what I have for you today. So, I'll talk later. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your day on planet Earth.